So I want to be like Daniel. Uh, I want to determine to live my life based upon my internal principles rather than by the world's external pressures. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible one by one in order to not only understand them individually, but also to understand better how they fit together. For this series, as you already know, I've been recruiting help from outside, people who have spent a lot of time studying particular books of the Bible. And today I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. Paul Weaver. Dr. Weaver is the Academic Dean of the Word of Life Global Bible Institute. He's a professor of Bible and theology, a very productive author, and is passionate about providing high-quality Bible study resources that are affordable and within the reach of anyone serious about studying God's Word. And that's really why we're going to use him today as we come in our series to the book of Daniel, a text that Dr. Weaver is going to help us think through together. So first, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Weaver. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and love to be on this side of the microphone a little bit. Usually I'm on the other side as a host, but I also just want to say to your listeners, thank you for donating your pastor to serve our students as he's going to be teaching in Hungary and our own sound campus. So it's a privilege to have him serving with our with us in our Global Bible Institutes. Oh, thanks for that. And, and yeah, it's nice to be in the hot seat once in a while, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, when we come to the book of Daniel, Dr. Weaver, where do we find ourselves in the history of humanity and the plan of God's redemptive work? Situate us in the grand storyline, if you will. Well, that's a great question. Great place to start. And as you know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, it's so important to understand the historical context in which any one of the books was written. And we, we know that each book was written for an occasion, for a purpose. And so understanding the historical background really is essential to that, uh, to a proper interpretation of the book of Daniel or any other book. And so uh, let's do a, you know, a quick overview of some of the historical events that have led us up to the, the time point when the book of Daniel is written. Now we think back to the golden era of the United Kingdom. That's a very distant memory. We think of the, the kingdom under David and then Solomon. Well, after Solomon's death, the empire, of course, is divided into two kingdoms. You've got the 10 northern tribes, often referred to by the designation of Israel. And then you have the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, which is referred to as by the designation of Judah. So now the 10 northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. That's an important date to remember, 722 BC. The Assyrian Empire takes the 10 northern tribes into captivity, but the two southern tribes, known as Judah, remain in the promised land for another 100 years, uh, a few more years than that, but around 100 years before a series of three different exiles take place. And, and those three exiles don't take place at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, but rather at the hands of the Babylonians, specifically this uh, king we know as Nebuchadnezzar. And so the first of those three captivities takes place in 605 BC, and Daniel and his three friends were taken amongst that first exile. Uh, the next one is 597, and we think of the biblical character of Ezekiel, where he and 10,000 Hebrews are taken into exile. And then the third captivity in 586, uh, during this third and final deportation, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and devastates the temple. So uh, those are three important dates as well, 605, 597, 586. And again, the book of Daniel begins 
uh, at the time of the first Babylonian captivity uh, in 605 BC. And this is when Nebuchadnezzar is in power and Daniel and his three friends are taken as amongst the finest and brightest of the children of, of Judah, of the young people of Judah. Well, that's good. That really situates us where we are. They're really, in many respects, prisoners of war, right? Of this mm -hmm. foreign superpower. Now, as we come to the book of Daniel, then the Daniel proper, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an outline of the book, give us some handles to help us navigate the book as a whole. Give us an aerial view of the book. The book of Daniel, of course, is incredibly important to our understanding of God's plans, God's purposes in the past, in the present, and into the future. And so it describes the rise and fall of many Gentile empires, including the rise of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire and its fall, the rise and fall of the Greco-Macedonian Empire, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and finally, the rise and fall of the revised Roman Empire, which is yet future from our standpoint, from our vantage point, that revised Roman Empire. And most importantly, it describes a kingdom that will be worldwide, a global empire, and it will be instituted not by human hands, not by a uh, a human that is only human, but by God himself. And this is the rock that we see in chapter two. Hmm. It's the rock that destroys the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this is the a worldwide empire. It will be installed or instituted by the son of man. Daniel 7 tells us this. And this son of man will come riding in the clouds. By the way, the title son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And as a devout Jew, a devout Jew would know that this is not any normal human being. No normal human being just rides in the clouds. Mm -hmm. But this is a supernatural claim, a claim to deity. And this, of course, is why Caiaphas rips his garments when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And this is, again, math in the Gospel of Matthew. This title is used by Jesus many different times, uh, and it's his favorite title. And in fact, when I'm teaching the Gospel of Matthew, I, I teach the Gospel of Matthew on our Florida campus as well. Uh, I've taught it over uh, actually in Canada, our Owen Sound campus as well. Uh, I have all my students yell out Daniel 7. So every time we read the Son of Man or, or I say something and use this title, uh, I have my students proclaim loudly uh, Daniel 7. And that's because a well-trained Jewish reader would know that this is a special messianic title. This is a title that's more than just a human being. And this is first used in Daniel 7 and references the coming of the this son of man who will institute a theocratic kingdom. That is a kingdom where God will rule. And the book of Daniel, also it's important to remember as we think of the big picture of the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel 9 becomes very important for us as we think about the framework or the time frame that we reference as the 70th week of Daniel. We also call it the tribulation, right? The seven-year period where God will pour out his wrath upon the world, the evil Gentile nations, and this period of time where he will draw Israel back to their first love and prepare them to go into the kingdom for this kingdom that will be instituted. Now I'm thankful that, you know, future new Testament teachings help us to understand that the church will be raptured prior to this seven year period of time. But that's important. Daniel nine really lays out the sequence and the key structural beams. If you 
call it that way, the guidelines to help us understand the rest of really um, Jesus' teachings in Matthew 24 and 25, and then Paul's teachings and Peter's as they help us to understand God's plans for the future. But the book of Daniel really sets the cornerstone and the, the architectural beams to understanding God's plans for the future. Now, it's also important to note that to understand the book of Daniel, we must realize that it's not organized chronologically. At least not the whole book is organized chronologically. So under the leading of the Holy Spirit, Daniel organizes the contents based upon literary genre. And genre is just a, a fancy word for a type. So the first six chapters record a type of literature known as historical narrative. Right. The first six chapters is about historical events that actually transpired and, and uh, came about. And those are those six chapters are chronological. But then the second six chapters record visions that Daniel received. And those visions take place during various periods of time and actually goes back to uh, periods of time recorded in chapters one to six. So if you're not aware of this, it can become rather confusing. Um, chapters 1 to 6 follow events chronologically again, but the visions recorded in chapters 7 to 12 return to periods of time that were already covered in chapters 1 to 6. So those visions are mentioned chronologically, but then kind of starts over, if you can put it that way, beginning chapter 7. As those visions were revealed, uh, they're recorded in that sequence. So chapters 1 to 4 involves historical narratives uh, around the Babylonian king known as Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 occurs during the reign of King Belshazzar, who is also a Babylonian king. Chapter 6 occurs during the reign of King Darius, from the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's the first six chapters. That's the historical narrative surrounding three of the kings, the first two Babylonians, Babylonian kings, the third one uh, being a Persian or Medo-Persian Empire. Now, when we get to chapters 7 to 12, we need to remember that this is now the visions, the visions that Daniel received. This is, we might even use the word apocalyptic visions, visions about the end times, I know not everyone uses the term apocalyptic because of the confusion that mm -hmm. that is caused by non-biblical apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about apocalyptic literature visions that involve lots of symbols that have literal reference. Those symbols reference something in particular. So now when we get to chapters 7 to 12, uh, we're talking about dealing with visions, visions that Daniel received. And it, and it returns to periods of time again that were uh, recorded previously chapters one to six. I hope that's not too uh, confusing, but you got to realize chapters one to six, historical narrative, chapters seven to 12 visions. So the first two visions received by Daniel in chapters seven and eight were received during the reign of Belshazzar. So again, we don't go back to, to Nebuchadnezzar's reign because these visions were not received during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. These visions were received during Belshazzar's reign. And then vision, the vision recorded in chapter 9 was received by Daniel during the time of Darius. And the vision recorded in chapters 10 to 12 was received during the reign of Cyrus. So that's kind of a big picture, a lot of details, but maybe that will give our listeners a good understanding of the book of Daniel. So the book is really split in half. There's six chapters of historical narrative, which 
anyone who's read through the Bible will remember because it is jam-packed with some epic stories, the mm-hmm. stories that made it to the flannel graph oftentimes. And yes. in Sunday school, they had the Daniel in the lion's den, the, mm-hmm. the issue with food, the feast, the writing on the wall. There's some really well-known stories in that first half. Mm-hmm. And then as you've described, when it comes to chapter 7, it really switches to, as you said, a different genre. And it's very noticeable, but no less epic. Like The visions that are received are are colorful and amazing. I'm wondering if you could touch on, because this is so chock full, especially the latter half of Daniel, so chock full of prophecy, how important is it to understand Daniel, to understand New Testament prophecy? Is it important to have that in place before we get to perhaps what is a more well-known prophetic book, which be Revelation, but Mm -hmm. how much are those two related? How important is the Old Testament one to understand first? Well, that's a great question. I love the commentary by John Walvoord, the second president of Dallas Seminary, Mm -hmm. uh, that's entitled Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation, Mm -hmm. or Daniel, the Key to Revelation, I think even. So in other words, by the title, he's making it clear that you you have to understand the book of Daniel to truly understand the book of Revelation. There go hand in hand. Uh, The book of Daniel really, again, outlines the key components uh, that are going to be filled out uh, by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, then by Paul, especially in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, and then uh, certainly the book of Revelation. So the book of Daniel just really sets the stage for, for all of the New Testament prophetic literature. And we want to make sure that we understand the Old Testament, that foundation, and we're building upon that Old Testament foundation. So God has revealed himself to us over periods of time and that the new revelation doesn't uh, doesn't exclude or reinterpret old revelation. It builds upon the foundation. So the book of Daniel is essential to that. Chapters 6 to 12 record these several receives, and, and these visions help Daniel to understand the events that would come in the future. And so let me be clear, when Daniel received these visions, the events were all still future future from his perspective. Now, over the last 2,600 years or more than that, many of the events that Daniel saw in his visions did come to fruition. They were fulfilled literally, many of them, not all of them, many of them, and in great specificity. So that which that leads me to a very important hermeneutical principle as we study the book of Daniel. Now, hermeneutics is simply put, is a simple way to understand it. Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. We call it an art because it takes time. You have to apply it, understand. It's not just putting certain rules into a into equation and you automatically get the right interpretation. You do have a process of learning how to interpret scripture well, but it's also a science. In other words, we do apply certain rules or principles that are important to uh, to apply to the text of scripture. So one hermeneutical rule or principle that we should apply uh, properly in order to interpret scripture properly is the what we call the literal principle. In other words, we realize that God has fulfilled so many prophecies specifically and concretely. Uh, so when we look at prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled or has not been fulfilled yet, we should expect that it will be, that it will be fulfilled literally and specifically, just as God has done in the past. So a very clear example of this, I find in Daniel chapter 9, there are several details in chapter 9 that have been specifically 
and literally fulfilled. In verse 25, Daniel is informed that there will be a decree allowing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Well, that is specifically fulfilled in 444 BC when Artaxerxes allows nations that had been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar to return to their lands and rebuild their cities. And due to this decree, we know that Nehemiah is able to lead a return trip to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls in 52 days. So that's one specific prophecy that was fulfilled literally in that one verse, verse 25. Well, in the same verse, verse 25 of Daniel 9, Daniel is informed that the Messiah will be cut off. This too is a prophecy that was fulfilled literally and concretely. It was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in the same verse, again, a third prophecy is fulfilled. Daniel is informed that the city will be destroyed and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Well, this is literally fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus destroys Jerusalem and its temple. So today the temple is uh, still not been rebuilt. It's, it's, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Temple Mount, you'll see a, a Muslim mosque there. And so there is no temple dwelling there since AD 70. In fact, the closest that a Jewish person can come to the temple now is the Wailing Wall because the, the Arabs and the Palestinians control the Temple Mount. So that's why they go to the Wailing Wall. Well, that occurred back in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. So this is just three examples of fulfilled prophecy in just one verse. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many other prophecies found in the book of Daniel that have already been fulfilled in great detail and great specificity. So when we come to verse 27, same chapter, chapter 9, verse 27, a verse, a, a prophecy that has not been literally fulfilled yet, we can expect that it will be just as God predicted. And this verse describes a seven-year period of time that begins with a signing of a covenant. And at the midpoint of this seven-year period of time, there will be what Daniel calls and later, Jesus references in Matthew 24, 15, the abomination of desolation, such a heinous sin in God's eyes. The Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped, and he sits in the place of God in the temple. This is a horrible event. This is an abominable event. And so the literal principle is so important when we want to be consistent we must be consistent in the way we approach and interpret the bible from genesis until revelation so i'm hearing all of this and i'm thinking i'm putting myself in the place of someone who's just reading the bible casually in their armchair at home and they're reading through daniel and they come through this great storyline of daniel one through six and then all of a sudden they enter into a very different area it's colorful, it's confusing, all these signs and, and prophecies like you're saying. I wonder if you could give a word of encouragement to that person and say, this is why you should plow through. This is why you should do the hard work of trying to understand these prophecies, because this is the benefit that it has for you in your Christian life today. What good does prophecy do, aside from just being exciting and, and fantastical, what benefit does it do to help me pursue Christ-likeness and accomplish our goals on earth today? Well, I really appreciate that uh, question. And of course, I'm teaching freshmen the book of Daniel. So yeah, I'll be wow. teaching that in just a few weeks. And it, it, it can be complicated at times, right? Chapters 7 to 12, like you mentioned before, chapters 1 to 6 is a lot of those wonderful stories that we embrace and appreciate greatly and have been told uh, if we grew up in a church, uh, those stories. But even then, even in chapter 2, right, with the statue and the various elements 
those are symbols, even the goat and um, the various symbols there. So even in chapters one to six, there are some uh, significant symbols uh, that we need to understand and interpret carefully. But but a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel and, and uh, prophecy, of course, is important to God, isn't it? So mm -hmm. uh, he included it for a reason. Uh, it shows us that God is in control of all things, that he's sovereign overall. It, it shows us that God, anything that's happening, COVID did not take God by surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we study the book of Daniel and prophecy in general, it brings a great joy and, and appreciation that God is in control. And as we look at the future events, it excites us as we have expectation of the coming kingdom, right? When God will institute a righteous kingdom and, and he gives us this wonderful privilege to rule and reign with him. And so it helps us keep perspective where we are, but recognize we're just pilgrims, right? We're just on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey in this life. It's so short. James tells us life is just a breath, a breath right? Mm -hmm. And so we want to invest this life in, in a profitable way. We want to recognize that the hundred years or less that we live is just a, a blip compared to the thousand year reign of Christ and compared to eternity future. Uh, but what we do in this life has significant implications mm -hmm. upon, we know the Bible talks about reward in the coming kingdom and privileges we'll have to rule and reign with him. And, and what we do in this life has implications upon the privileges we'll be given in the coming kingdom. So prophecy is certainly with the imminency of the return of the of the lord the rapture we call it right when we're when the church those that who believe in jesus christ as their savior will be caught up to meet the lord in the air so uh, that gives us important and first john talks about that right that uh, we want to purify ourselves as he is pure and uh, we know that in a in a moment we'll be changed to become like him and we'll see him as he is so prophecy uh, is important to god should be important to us and it does take effort though, right? Yeah. But if we apply, apply the natural laws of communication uh, with work and with effort and with leading like from, from Pastor Boyd and other great Bible teachers that helps us to um, understand the big picture of the book and then the details. So it's, I think it's hugely important and oftentimes neglected. Mm. Isn't it amazing too, you mentioned the specificity with which prophecies have come to pass. Does that not give us just an increased trust in our Lord that what he says will come to pass? He is good to his word down to the jot and tittle that he has not misspoke in any capacity. We can trust our God. We can take it to the bank. That's right, for sure. Yeah. And that's why you know, I think we both uh, appreciate Genesis 12, Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, right? That's a covenant that God made so long ago, but it's still many of that, a lot of that, the land has never been fully realized or occupied. And that of course will be finally realized in the coming kingdom. Well, let's say for argument's sake, you've convinced me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep reading past Daniel chapter six, get into seven, eight and continuing on. You've given me some principles for reading and interpreting prophecy literal just take it at its word what it says of what it says i'm wondering if you can go to the other side and maybe warn me of some landmines to avoid what are where are some areas that reading prophecy or studying prophecy people have gone off the rails before some things that are you can just caution me on yeah so we need to make sure we use this literal principle that um we understand that scripture was intended to be interpreted 
literally and that doesn't mean there's not figurative obviously symbols and figurative language is all throughout the bible but those symbols and figurative language has literal reference so it's not as one author of the book of revelation actually said it's just the book of revelation is a beautiful poem of of good defeating evil well it's a lot more than that right mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very specific symbols that have specific reference sometimes reference are churches literal churches sometimes referent is satan sometimes referent is a two literal witnesses but when we study prophecy we need to make sure we understand this literal principle that god is communicating to us using normal language that language was divinely uh, instituted by god so that he could communicate to us what he wanted to and so uh, one of the things we need to avoid is basically just being afraid of prophecy in general or just saying it's it's not essential for us. Of course, the book of Revelation is given with a blessing for those who read it. And uh, but yet there are godly men in the history, uh, even Martin Luther, Calvin, you know, the only book of the New Testament that John Calvin didn't write a commentary on was the book of Revelation. So that's one side, right? We can uh, have the afraid of studying it that we don't study it or afraid that mm. uh, we might that it might turn some people off mm. because of prophecy and and trying to not not teaching on it because afraid afraid that it might cause division mm. well god has included it for us to understand but the other extreme right we don't want to uh, become doomsday people right i think god i think although we look around and we see a lot of wickedness taking place right we see a lot of evil people in power it seems like righteousness is not being rewarded and wickedness is but we do know that the gospel can accomplish great things and we don't have to be the pessimistic futuristic person so in other words god can do great things through the gospel things can get better before it gets worse right so we want to make sure that we don't become doomsday gloomy uh, christians that uh, are not optimistic about what god can do through the gospel in fact it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong but the purpose would be the opposite of that of prophecy mm-hmm. it's to spur us on to hope in fact when peter points to the end it's to uh pursue so that we would pursue godliness with vigor and zeal it didn't seem like mm-hmm. the apostles were doomsday people even though they <laughs> clung to prophecy yeah and of course Things are going to get really bad when the church is raptured, right? After that, when when the restrainer, as Paul mentions, the restrainer, which I believe is the Holy Spirit indwelling believers, when the restrainer is removed, things are going to get bad quickly. But until then, you know, the gospel can can do great things, and it's very powerful. It's redemptive. So mm-hmm. uh, we want to be optimistic of what not what we can do, but what God can do through through us. Amen. Well, I want to jump back from the prophecy section into the more well-known, perhaps, narrative section, historical narrative section. I've heard many people say, it seems like today, as believers in the West, we are living in a bit of an exile. You know, we are, as we're told in Scripture, sojourners. We are aliens in a strange land, but even more so these days, we are outsiders. And some people will take solace reading those first few chapters of Daniel and seeing that they were in exile. These are men of God in exile being forced to live in a pagan world and try to live out their faithfulness to their God in spite of the lack of support around them. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could just take a minute and maybe encourage us from those first few chapters. What lessons can we learn from Daniel that are appropriate to apply to us today as people who are living, as the New Testament says, as aliens and strangers in this land? 
Yeah, that's great. There are so many valuable lessons to be learned in the book of Daniel. We learn so much from the examples of Daniel and his three friends. These men were willing to to die for their faith rather than compromise their biblical convictions. And so I want to be like Daniel and his three friends, right? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I want to determine to live my life based upon my internal principles rather than by the world's external pressures. And when I teach the book of Daniel to my students, I repeat that statement and each day before the beginning of class and we say it together, I'm determined to live my life based upon my internal principles rather than by the world's external pressures. And so that's a very important application in, in life lesson. And as, as we are in a seemingly increasingly pagan world, although, you know, there people, you know, the Roman empire was pretty pagan, right? Christians around the world are uh, in very difficult circumstances as well. Um, but as we become more and more different from the world around us, we need to be uh, living based upon our convictions uh, rather than allowing ourselves to adapt uh, to culture around us. And maybe as we close this podcast or when we close this podcast, uh, that'd be a great application to, to mention as well. And mm-hmm. I, I see ind- indoctrination taking place amongst the three friends, but they, they were not indoctrinated. They were able to mm-hmm. keep above, above the fray and stay in true to their convictions. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you could definitely draw a parallel to our world today, uh, if not that we're we're not necessarily suffering like they were as a parallel, but certainly the indoctrination of our world into ourselves and into our children, the next generation certainly is a parallel that we can mm-hmm. we can notice. I'm wondering now if we zoom out to look at the whole book again, and if you were to encapsulate this book, you've got you know 20 seconds on an elevator with me to give me a pitch what is this book about what is daniel about i don't know how that comes up on an elevator but you got 20 seconds <laughs> what is the thrust of daniel why would god preserve this book for us aside from just pointing us to the future yeah so uh, i've developed a message statement for the book of daniel so that's how i would explain it and of course a message statement is simply hopefully something succinct enough to remember but broad enough to include all the details within it. So maybe mine's a little too wordy, but this is how I would boil down the book of Daniel. God is sovereign over all, and he using even evil empires and wicked rulers to accomplish his purpose. But in his time, he will restore Israel to its proper place of prominence, and his theocratic kingdom will be established forever, a kingdom superior in every way to the preceding Gentile empire. So if I could unpackage that a bit, uh, in the historical narratives, the interpreted dreams, the visions received, God shows that he is sovereign over all the evil nations, over all the Gentile nations, the Babylonians, the Syrians before that, even the Egyptians way long ago, but above the Medo-Persians, we see that God raises up the Babylonians and causes them to decline. He raises up the Medo-Persians, then he causes them to decline. He raises up the Greco-Macedonian Empire, then he causes it to decline. He causes the Roman Empire to rise and fall, and he will cause the revived Roman Empire to rise and fall. So ultimately, he will install a kingdom, right? A theocratic kingdom where God is in charge, a kingdom not made with human hands, which will be installed by the Son of God himself, when he comes riding on the clouds. 
And so he will institute a righteous kingdom that will be worldwide and destroy all the previous Gentile empires. And so it's, there's no semblance. It, you know, when we think of the Babylonian empire, there was still a semblance of other empires around, right? They weren't in charge of the whole world. Uh, when we think of the Medo-Persian, right? They, they took over the previous empire, but, but the coming theocratic kingdom will be unique and different. It will be worldwide. It will be a righteous kingdom, but it will destroy the semblance of all the previous Gentile empires before it. And this theocratic kingdom will last forever. It will begin with 1,000 years on earth, but that's just the beginning of the party, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes into eternity future. And the millennium starts. The millennium is 1,000 is the Latin word for 1,000. Early in the early church um, history, we know that the early Christians used the word chilliest for 1,000. They believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ and uh, so whether you call it Chileism or millennialism, uh, we know that God will institute a thousand year reign on earth. Well, that was a long elevator ride, but worth it. That was great. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, it's a great book of the Bible. It points us forward, like you said, and we're living in a time, it seems to me, that trust in the government is low. And to be reminded that God is sovereign over those governments, even the most powerful governments, he causes them to rise, he causes them to fall. And we await a perfect government, a perfect king on an earth, a new, a perfect earth, new heavens and new earth. And that should stoke the flames of our hope as Christians as well, in spite of what we're enduring now and the imperfections of our governments and everything else that should give us a great deal of hope, I think. Yeah. Well, Oh, let's end here. During your years of study over this book uh, specifically, how has God used Daniel in your life to, as scripture says, to teach, reprove, correct, and train you in righteousness? What in this book has the Lord used to prompt you toward Christ-likeness? Hmm. Yeah, I think right from the very beginning in chapter one, uh, again, we, it's hard to imagine. We need to put ourselves in the the shoes of Daniel and his three friends, right? They're ripped out of their home, their land, everything that they knew and was familiar to them. It's very likely that we won't go through that, but they were, and um, they were Hebrew youth and they were, Nebuchadnezzar was very smart, right? He may have been a wicked man. Of course, there's questions about whether he repented at the end of his life, but he had a three-step strategy that I think is also Satan's three-step strategy. Uh, he knew that he he wanted to take the best and the brightest, the young people of the lands he conquered, and he sought to isolate them. Then he sought to indoctrinate them. And then finally, his third step, and, and I think the Satan's three-step plan approach to many youth and adults as well, finally assimilate them. So he isolates them from their people, from the land of promise, from the other Hebrew uh, their parents and those that would have influenced them to be followers of Yahweh. He rips them out of their land and their culture. He then tries to indoctrinate them in the ways of the gods of the Babylonians. And then finally, he tries to assimilate them into the pagan culture. And, and I think for the most part, he was successful. I think Daniel and his three friends were the exception, not the norm. And uh, Satan's not original. And I think he, he tries to do the same thing to us today and uh, to our youth today. And maybe we're not taken into captivity, but he certainly tries to, to isolate us, indoctrinate us, and assimilate us. He, he wants to isolate us from other believers, right? And that's why it's so important for the gathering of the church together to, to learn the word of God, 
to encourage one another, to spur one another on to good works. But he wants to isolate us from other believers. And of course, COVID's done that pretty significantly, and we could never have imagined that. But many of us live, feel isolated, right? And that's why it's so important to even uh, when churches aren't able to gather or, or, or there's a breakout within an assembly to continue to seek ways to maintain that community and participate, whether it's virtually small groups over uh, over the internet, uh, just keeping plugged in so we don't become isolated. Uh, he's trying to indoctrinate us with the culture in which we live, isn't he? The unbiblical worldview is all around us. We see it and hear it. It's everywhere, right? And when it's, it's on TV, it's on the internet, it's on the radio, it's on billboards, it's everywhere around us. And uh, we are becoming different, right? We stand out and we should continue to stand out. But the final step of Satan is eventually to assimilate us. He wants us to make, make us look like everyone around us. He wants to prevent the, the power of the gospel mm. by assimilating us and not making us and causing us not to be different. Regarding the strategy of Satan, uh, Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, uh, writes this. I see the same strategy successfully employed by the evil one in our own day. However, in our case, it's often voluntary. Naively and sometimes willingly, parents send their children off to secular college or university as lambs prepared for slaughter. Isolated from their ch church and Christian friends, they're quickly seduced by so-called intellectual elites and walk away from Christ. And sometimes that happens, right? And, um, and we want to do the best we can to prepare our children to have a strong Christian worldview and, and understand the biblical principles uh, of Scripture and how they are just as relevant to us today as they were when they were originally penned. But that's why, of course, I'm such a firm believer in the Bible Institute ministry. Or, uh, there's just something about investing a year of your life to really establish a strong biblical worldview. And something that teachers can do and disciples can do that parents can't, right? And, and even pastors sometimes, mm -hmm. our youth, I think, need to hear it from other sources, from other voices. And I just love the impact that a year of studying the Bible intensively can have in the life of lives of our young people. So that's maybe a self-supporting um, statement, but I, I think we need to do all that we can to help our young people as they really, even as 18 year olds there, that's a great challenge to go into a secular world and um, stand for faith. And actually, and when I was 18, I'm, thank the Lord that he gave me the wisdom that I wasn't ready to go to the university and stand for my faith yet. And um, the Lord led me to study at a Bible Institute for a year and know what I know, why I know it, uh, excuse me, know uh, what the Bible says and, and know what I believe and how to defend it. And no matter where I went into full-time Christian work or into to business world, I could uh, use my gifts and abilities for God's glory. So Finally, I'd say maybe your listeners don't know this, but the book of Daniel is one of the favorite books of the persecuted church around the world. Uh, statistics show that persecution and martyrdom is not on the decline. It's actually up. And although we don't necessarily hear much about it, uh, certainly not on many media outlets, uh, the book of Daniel is a favorite amongst the persecuted church because it reminds us that our God is sovereign overall. And that in his time, he will institute a kingdom, a righteous kingdom, not made with human hands, 
a righteous kingdom that will be instituted by God himself and Jesus Christ, the son of man will appear in the clouds and will institute this theocratic kingdom where God is in charge and where Christ will rule from the throne of David, where wickedness will be swiftly judged and righteousness will be rewarded. And a kingdom in which we will have the incredible privilege to rule and reign with Christ. That's a huge privilege that, that we don't deserve. We'll be rewarded in that coming kingdom based upon our faithfulness in this present age. So this brings the persecuted church great comfort and it brings me great comfort and I hope it brings your listeners great comfort as well. Invest your life for Christ, no matter the cost, because it's worth it. And by the way, you'll be rewarded for it in the coming kingdom. Well, amen. I can't improve on that. So I'm going to sign off here. I'm going to thank you, Dr. Weaver, for giving us your time, your expertise to help us understand this book of the Bible just a little bit different or a little bit better. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Thanks for the time. My great pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.